Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 18, air date July 29th, 2013. Because it's a treasure 
So he sits here like the diamond of India. That's what I can tell you. So I take this opportunity, the whole family, when I say family, it is the management, staff and students, please give a standing ovation when we honor Dr. Shiva Ayurveda. So what I want to talk to you about is about the invention of email. But I also don't want to talk to you about the invention of email. So I want to talk to you about the invention of email, but I want to also talk about something far more important. Because the invention of email is, is more than the invention of email. It's really the story about the struggle for innovation, and it's really the story about you. It's really not about me, it's really the story about you and how the future can unfold. So my uh, journey to invent email is really a reflection of what the future holds for all of you. That's what I want to share with you today. Alright? And I want to make this a discussion. So I'm going to share some very personal things and I want you to also talk to me in a very personal way. Obviously you can ask me technology questions, but the reality is ultimately life is very, very personal. So in 1963, I was born in India. I was born in two environments, which was pretty interesting. I was born in Bombay, which is a, obviously a very, very different city uh, than it is today, but it was still very, very chaotic. And I was also brought up in a small village in India, where my grandmother was a sitter, and she used to work 16-hour days as a farmer. And in the weekends, she would help people. She had been trained in a system. And I'll use the word system a lot because I believe people in the world need to understand how systems work. Because understanding of systems is a way to really liberate the world. So she, she was, in many ways, a system scientist. Although she was a person who didn't get educated. But she could look at your face. There's an ancient Indian Siddha science called Samudra Lakshana, and then based on that, she could understand what was going on inside your body. And based on that understanding, she would prescribe different drugs, different yogas, different mantras. So today we call this personalized medicine, right? And in those days, it was a Siddha system of medicine. So I was intrigued as a six-year-old child watching this relatively uneducated woman being able to heal people. So I was motivated to want to be a doctor. So when I came to the United States, my parents moved in 1970 to the United States. And in fact, we moved to one of the poorest neighborhoods. Now you have to understand, my Appa and Amma were both very well educated. They weren't your typical immigrants going to America to, to seek the land and milk and honey. They actually had very good jobs here. My father was a chemical engineer, was the head of manufacturing in Bombay. 
for Gopal Sinani, my mom was the head of mathematics at one of the prestigious schools. They went to the United States because they too were innovators. They wanted adventure. And they wanted, in some ways, a different education for their kids. The year that they came to the United States was 1970, and if you look at the history books, you'll notice that was one of the worst economic periods. So the job that my dad was promised evaporated, so we moved to a very, in fact, one of the poorest cities in the United States called Patterson, New Jersey. But within seven years, my parents worked very hard and then moved to one of the wealthiest school systems called Livingston by 1977-78. It's your typical immigrant story. But as uh, I think your college encourages you to do both academics and sports, I was actually very good at both. I was I deeply loved mathematics and science, but I was also an athlete. I was, you know, the star pitcher on the baseball team. I, you know, our, our football team went to the state finals, so I enjoyed athletics. My point is that uh, you don't have to just do one thing. There's a theory that if you're very good at science, that means you can't be a good athlete, right? And these are just theories people come up, but I was encouraged to do both. So 1978, uh, I was 14 years old, and I had completed all the mathematics courses. I, I don't know what you were doing, I don't know if in 12th grade you teach calculus, do you? Okay. So in ninth grade, or eighth grade, I finished calculus. So I, my school didn't have any more math courses to offer me. So in the summer of that year, in 1978, uh, a very uh, visionary teacher at New York University, New York University is actually a college in New York, it's a very uh, strong college, they have a great mathematics institute, they invited me, to, uh, they, they actually ran a competition where 40 students were selected to actually come to New NYU from the high school and actually take eight computer, seven computer programming languages during an eight-week period. Okay, so I was the only Indian, the only dumpling selected. I think we're very few dumplings here in the United States. And I got selected. And I used to take a bus from New Jersey to the train station, from the train station in New York, arrive there around 7 a.m. and take this very immersive course from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. Okay, and I learned seven programming languages. In fact, the program was so good that you could be a professional programmer after this. So after I finished, school started that, that year, and since I didn't have any mathematics courses, I only had a few courses to finish, so I actually wanted to drop out of high school. So my mother, at that time, was working at the University of Medicine and Dentistry in New Jersey, which was located in another city called Newark. Don't confuse it with New York. It was called Newark, N-E-W-A-R-K. Okay? Some people confuse it with New York. New York is a different state. So Newark, New Jersey, and my mother worked there, and she introduced me to a mentor, like one of your teachers, who really cared. And his name was Les Michelson, and he was a physicist. And Les Michelson said, Shiva, don't drop out of high school, I'll give you a challenge. And that's where the story starts. So he gave me a challenge. In 1978, um, any, anyone, by the way, over the age of 40 on the stage here, remembers that um, most offices ran through what was called the inter-office mail system. So, so if you can imagine this, 
So here's a 14-year-old kid in a university in Newark. That university is a medical college, and it has three campuses, one in Newark, one in another city called New Brunswick, and one in another city called Piscataway. And these three campuses have medical doctors, offices, secretaries, etc. About a thousand different offices, like you have here, you have different offices. What was interesting was this entire campus was run by a communication system. It wasn't email, they didn't have email, they didn't have text messaging, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Twitter, right? But they had an inter-office paper mail system. Inter-office paper mail system. Now I emphasize the word system because it wasn't simply sending telegraph from one location to another or simply exchanging text messages like Twitter. It was an inter-office mail system. So what was that system? So if you went into an office, one of these thousand offices, there was a secretary, typically one or two secretaries. There was a secretary, she had a typewriter and she would write a memo, right? And she would put a piece of paper Sometimes it was carbon paper. You know what I'm saying? The carbon paper? She would put the paper with the carbon paper, another piece of paper, like a sandwich, and she would type to generate a copy, a carbon copy, CC. Carbon copy, right? And then she also on her desk had a physical box. It was called an I-N-B-O-X inbox, okay? She had another box called an out, O-U-T, B-O-X. She had another box labeled drafts, D-R-A-F-T-S, drafts. She also had big iron folders, metal folders, called folders, file folders, with different files that she could file. She also had an address book, right? Because remember, this was a large medical college. So if you had a thousand students, you had each of your names, which department you belonged to, where your location was. There was no email address, physical address. Um, she had a trash bucket, right? Sometimes if she didn't like a memo, she'd throw it in the trash bucket. She had paper clips where she would make attachments, right? So sometimes you had a letter you had to attach. So I'm give, the reason I'm giving you this detailed explanation is to tell you this inter-office mail system had many parts, components, inbox, outbox. The, a mailman would come and pick up the mail from the outbox. He had, he had a box. Sometimes it was a secure box. It had to be secure so no one stole it. Sometimes he would give a receipt, a signed receipt. You follow what I'm saying? So the reason I'm telling you, this was a complicated system. It was not just sending text messages. It was a complicated system of interlocked parts. And like this, there were probably about 100 other parts. You could forward the email, right? You could sometimes mass distribute the email. There was all these functions. So I was asked by Dr. Michelson, Shiva, would you like to create the electronic version of this inter-office mail system? The electronic version of this system. So, by the way, when I was hired, they treated me like an equal. I was not treated like a small kid. I was treated as an adult. The people in this environment were 35, 40, 50, 60 year old. I wasn't simply a kid coming there. I showed up to work with my briefcase. I worked. Sometimes 10 hour days, sometimes I work 15 hour days. I, I uh, was treated and behaved as a professional worker. So what I did was I created the electronic version of the system on the computer. Created a user interface. Remember these secretaries were used to using the typewriter. They needed something easy to use. So it wasn't just writing computer code. 
It had to be easy to use. A user interface had to be easy. I did training sessions for these doctors. Just like I'm talking to you, we would hold training classes. I wrote a user's manual. And I called this system E-M-A-I-L, email. Now why did I call it email? It, this term may seem obvious today, but it wasn't in 1978. The only reason I called it email was because I programmed 50,000 lines of code in a programming language called Fortran. I'm sure people here know Java, C, these programming languages, right? Fortran had a limit in 1978 where you could only have five characters for the, pro for the, the, the variable. So E-M-A-I, I was very good. If it was probably 10, I may have called it electro-mail, right? Etc. So the term was not so, so here in 1978, I call it email for this system. In fact, the Oxford English Dictionary, if you Google it, has the origin of the term email 1979. The Merriam-Webster has it 1982. So we use the term, we built it, and it was deployed across 500 offices. And we didn't need, there was no internet in these offices. We had a local area network. So you don't need the internet to have email, as some people confuse people in the press. We built the system, and in 1980, there was no software patents. You couldn't protect software in 1978, 89, and it was only 1994 could you protect software through patents. However, in 1980, the US Copyright software through copyright. So 1981, I applied for the copyright. In 1982, I was awarded the copyright for email, computer program for electronic mail system. So that was the development of email. And then I worked on the system, you know, continued evolving. And I went to MIT, as people have shared with you. You can read your resume and all. I got four degrees. I would go into MIT. I would study something. Then I would start a company. I would come back to MIT, do some more degrees started another company. So that was my life. I had one foot in academia, but I always wanted to translate stuff. Today, they call it translational research. To me, it was just being fun, right? It was like doing some theory and then going and creating. So that's what I did. In 1993, 15 years after the creation of email, I got involved in email again. I was, my field of research at the time at MIT was pattern analysis, analyzing patterns, or some people call artificial intelligence, robotics, I think robotics, right? And the idea was President Clinton was getting 5,000 emails per day, and they were looking for ways to automatically could you create a robot on a computer that could read the email and categorize it, because the email volume was growing. So the White House ran a contest, again I was a student, because people had known some of my research work, I was asked to participate in this contest and I ended up winning the contest. Beat five other companies. So here I was a young student, about 22 or something, in a PhD program. I left my PhD. My parents were very upset. And I decided I'd go start a company called EchoMail. This is not an email, completely different. And we built that company to around $200 million in value over 10 years. And we became the company that analyzed emails for customer service departments of large companies. Because to read an email is about $18. With our technology, we can read it, automatically categorize it, and bring down the cost. Everyone follow? So that was another innovation. But it was a system. EchoMail was a system, not just one singular piece. In 2003, I came, I remember I always had an interest in medicine. These are all diversions, okay? 
MIT had opened a new department called Systems Biology. Again, system, the word system, right? And the idea of systems biology was there was a recognition that the Western world of producing, of doing uh, health was not really working, right? Today, if you go to a doctor, they have many specialists, right? You go to a doctor, you say, hey, I have a headache. And I'm, not, I'm stressed out. I'll say, okay, go see this doctor for endocrine system. Go see that doctor. Maybe you need your head checked. Maybe you need some therapy, psychology. Maybe you have a depression issue. Go see a psychiatrist. You see what I'm saying? They give you to multiple people. There's no unified way of looking at the body. And that's why healthcare costs are going up. So there is a theory that systems biologists, could we create a holistic view of the human body, right? That was 2002. That was after the genome project had ended, and there was a realization that we have the same number of genes as a worm, right? As a small worm. So the realization of what makes us human is not the number of genes, but the chemical reactions that go on in this body. And one of the challenges that was put forward by the US government was could you create a computer model of the human cell? Because if you could do that, then you can model disease on the computer. So you wouldn't have to take as, I think as you mentioned, as I shared, today it takes 13 years to produce a single drug, $5 billion. And most of the drugs that get produced are highly toxic, have side effects. Now in the synthetic tradition of Hamanaru, the system, that that system was you never gave someone one drug. You, like if you look at that masala putty, right? You don't, you don't just give them one You mix it. And the reason you mix it is because you reduce the toxicity and you get what's called a synergistic effect. So we created Cytosol, that came out of our research. And that research enabled us to model the human cell. We published very papers. And in 2008, I won a Fulbright Award to come back to India to study the correlation between Siddha and Sitsis biology. Right? Because that was always my interest growing up as a six-year-old watching my grandmother. So I came back to India, found some very interesting correlations between these two systems. And uh, when I was leaving, some of you can read this on the internet, I was hired by Andrew Manmohan Singh. I uh, was appointed as the first outstanding scientist technologist of Indian origin in 2009 to, to head up, to head up a to have CSIR's innovation goals. Remember, in 1947, Nehru had started CSIR to be a translational institute, right? Translation means you don't sit there and write papers or patent. You actually create something and help people. That was the vision that Nehru had in 1947. However, over those 70 years, CSIR became a paper-pushing organization. So my job was to help innovate. So in the first three months, I came up with a, a new strategy. I met 1,500 scientists all over India who, who were very smart. They had amazing innovations, in fact, great ideas. But they were under this unfortunate bureaucracy where the superiors were afraid of their juniors. They were jealous. Very different than what I experienced with Dr. Les Michelson when I was 14. He encouraged me. So I wrote a report, which you can read on the internet, and I said, look, India needs to create, we need to give freedom. And you can read the controversy that came out. And I came back to the United States, and in the question and answers, I thought over that. But I realized, so this is now 2010, I realized 
There are a lot of smart people in India. There are a lot of smart people right here in this audience. There are a lot of smart people in inner cities and small villages. In fact, there was a smart kid who was 14 years old, a dark-skinned Indian who created email. And I had never shared this story. But after I saw this unfortunate way the bureaucracy didn't let our own people innovate, I thought I would share that story. So if you look, in November 2011, an article comes out, because my mother had passed away, and she had saved in a beautiful suitcase all the computer code, all the copyright patents, everything of 1978 when I went to email. So Time Magazine, a reporter came and he looked at all these artifacts, and he wrote a very important news article called The Man Who Invented Email. That was in November 2011. Then, I was going to donate all of this to the MIT Museum. MIT looked at it, they said, this is, we should have this. This should actually belong to the Smithsonian. Everyone know the Smithsonian Institution? It's the biggest museum in the world. You know, Alexander Graham Bell's phone is in there, Edison's light bulb is in there. So I was honored in February 16th, where the material was accepted, into the Smithsonian. Now here's the interesting thing. Thank you. But, but this is where the story begins. Is <laughs> once you see what you will find out that when you actually tell the truth, you know, that be ready for the consequences. Okay? Remember when Galileo told the Catholic Church the Earth is not the center of the solar system. Everyone knows what happened there, right? It was a fact. There's this black and white. People denied it. People didn't want to accept it. In fact, it took to 1992 for the Catholic Church to say they were sorry to Galileo 400 years later. Okay? But this is how systems, we talked about email as a system, We've talked about echo analysis, we've talked about cytosol as a system. But what you need to understand in 2013 is how systems of power operate. Because 50% of India is below the age of 25. 600 million people, 70% is below the age of 40. If we are going to unleash innovation in the world, it is you who are going to do that. And it is your responsibility, but you need to understand how systems of power work. Systems of power, unfortunately, work not to get truth out. You see, truth, justice, is not something where Galileo has to wait 300 years, right? That's not, is that right? Should someone have to wait 300 years to get absolved? That's not right. Justice is things occurring, truth being revealed at the right time. So, when February 16th occurred on Smithsonian, what occurs? You have this reaction, and you can see it on the internet. A $35 billion company, right, which had, which is a big military contractor in the United States, so a billion dollar company, funds computer historians to attack Shiva. They said, no, what occurred before 1978 was email. The term didn't even exist. The exchange of text messages, which did exist. And they try to confuse the public. But what's fascinating is that you have people attack me. They should say this Indian should be beaten. You can read the stories. It's fascinating. 
And what you see is that today in India, we can say we have corruption, right? Anand Hazari, Kurdwal fighting, it's pretty open. But in these developed nations, the corruption is very sophisticated, okay? Highly sophisticated. So you have billion dollar companies who fund academic quote unquote research and they work with the media. This is how systems of power work. Because why is the story of the invention of email so threatening? Look, when I was at MIT, I created EchoMail, I'm on the front page. When I created Cytosol, but in 2012, I said, look, email was not created at MIT. It was created in a small school in Newark, New Jersey by a 14-year-old immigrant kid. Do you understand why that scares people? Do people understand? That scares people because it reveals a truth, which is that innovation can take place anywhere, anytime, by anybody. That is the truth. And that truth says that, wait a minute, America is not the only innovator, neither is MIT or IIT, that there are, that innovation is in our DNA, that every one of you in this room can be, create things far greater than email if you have a couple of ingredients. You don't need a lot of money, you don't need the government. What you need is good family, which fortunately in India, that's part of our culture, we have good family. We need good mentors. I had Dr. Michelson, right? Good teachers that you have. And we need a little bit of infrastructure. But within that environment is where innovation can come. So that is the truth. Now that truth is what the invention of email reflects. But if you want to tell a truth that innovation only takes place in these centers, that lots of money goes there, and only certain people can innovate. You follow me? You see what I'm saying? So, but that is not going to help the world. The world right now, as I was telling the press earlier, needs 1.8 billion jobs. Let me repeat, 1.8 billion jobs is what the world needs according to some very important experts over the next 10 years. Otherwise, we're going to have more Egypt revolutions. Egypt is not about religion, it's about jobs. Okay, we're not going to produce jobs by TCS, Infosys, good companies simply out doing outsourcing. It's not how jobs are going to be created. It's going to get created by innovation and unleashing that innovation everywhere. And there are certain people in power who don't want to see that happen because they profit today by only having a few people innovate. You guys follow me? So, by exercising your right to innovate, you're sending a message. By understanding the struggle of the invention of email, by a 14-year-old Cambodian kid, it's not about me, it's your story. You follow what I'm saying? This is your story. And that is why what's been interesting since I've been in India, the Tamil media, the Tamil people, I feel great love from you, by the way, and great support. I want to thank you for that. <laughs> However, what's fascinating is we still have these divides in India. You know, we did a story on AI News that came to my home tape me. He goes up to the North Indian editor and he puts Shiva Ray claims. You see what I'm saying? This kind of racism exists in India. But it has to be fought. We need to go move forward and we need to tell the facts. But we need to tell those facts as one union, not only in the national genome, but the other things. Because these divisions are not going to help India and it's not going to help all of us.
We need to break down these divisions. And you, as a future leaders in India, need to do that. You need to recognize when you're studying computer science, understand the system that operates behind that computer. You follow what I'm saying? Your education needs to understand the interconnection of systems. And when you understand that, you will become a force that will be unmovable, unshakable by any one of these people. And that is what our country needs right now. Okay? We need not just two parties, not just two leaders that we have to select from. You guys need to be the future leaders of India. You guys need to be the agent of change. And you need to understand how systems of power work. And that is what the story of the invention of email is really about. And I am absolutely proud to be a Cameroonian, to be among you. And, you know, us coming together to get the story out is a huge opportunity for us demanding our rights as a people because for over thousands of years, it's not nationalism, right? That is why the invention of email is such an important story for our time. And it must be told broadly, and it must be told widely, because it's, again, it's not my story. It's a story of the fact a kid who came from a small village here went off to America and created something again in the inner city, not at MIT. You follow what I'm saying? So I want you guys to take this story and use it as an inspiration for all of you that you guys should create things far more greater than email. And I'm not saying you have to create a product, it can be a service, it can be how you're innovative and how you deal with your community service. Anything, be innovative. But know that there are systems of power that operate and you will have to challenge them and you will have to fight them hard. And the world demands it. Thank you. So you said that we have come up with new things, as in we are also going to innovate. Yes? Yeah. And sir, you also mentioned that uh, we have to face a lot of um, hurdles on our way. So could you give us some tips to you know, face them mentally and emotionally? Yeah, it's a great question. So the question is that you will face hurdles along the way, and how do you face them? Look, there is a, if you read any history, if you read any historical books about people who've accomplished anything, or even if you look at inflection points in history, you will find out beyond the material conditions being right, there's another factor that's called courage. Courage is absolutely underestimated. Courage can completely change the course of history. So the issue is where do you find that courage? Where do you find that courage? And what attitude do you take in life to find that courage? Well, I say the courage that I've got to stand up against CSIR the government, and the courage that gives me the courage to let you know the facts about the invention of email and fight back when the press writes lies, is that courage that comes from our own tradition. What is that tradition? If you go back to your own roots, the tradition of the, frankly, the Siddha system, which pervaded all of India, long before any other systems, and again, those are facts, is a tradition of recognizing that each one of you, each one of us, is a divine being. Now, you can use whatever religion you want, but the facts are within us, 
is the temple of God. If you believe in a God or if you're an atheist, there is something within us that is the spirit of everything that's in the universe. And the other fact is that life here is ephemeral. We will all be gone one day. Now, if you cannot find courage in that, and you cannot find the fact that the purpose of life is to be a full human being. So, where I get my courage is to go back to those roots because each of you will find at some point in your life you're going to have to make a decision. I know there's a robotics club here, right? You will have to make a decision. Do you want to be a robot or do you want to be a human being? What do we mean by that? A robot is something that follows programming, cultural programs. My mama and papa don't do this, therefore it's right, blah, 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 right? Well, these are just programs. They're software. And at some point, you will face a hurdle or a struggle like you just said. And that point is when you're tested on whether you want to be a human being. And you have to ask yourself the question, do you want to change the world or do you want to accept it the way it is? Which means you have to ask yourself, do I want to change myself and accept the way who I am? And my point is, I get that courage from my own tradition. The fact that I had a grandmother who worked 16 hour days, you know, in leech fields in South India with nothing. I mean, come on, guys, look at what you have today. You guys have everything. What more do you want? You've already succeeded as far as I'm concerned. Everything else is icing on the cake. So there are no hurdles. These are just joyous moments. You should take them boldly. You follow what I'm saying, people? There are, we, we, we live in a world of plenty right now relative to our ancestors. And it is our responsibility to fight hard and face these challenges and move forward boldly. That we have a world in India that there's not only two candidates we have to choose from. One from a dynastic rule and someone else from another rule. You know, you guys should be the future leaders of India and face those hurdles. You guys have it. You guys are in a phenomenal condition. But go into yourself. Go into your own history. And all the courage you need. We all die one day, you know? Move forward in life, enjoy it, live it boldly. There's nothing else to do but to live it courageously. Next question. Yeah. My name is Abel, and uh, I was just kind of, we told that a session would be worse than but then I thought, I, I mean, if, suppose you did go to America, and if you were still in India, would you have still gone out and found out email? Uh, that's not my question. My question is, uh, in, in the present situation, uh, how do you think our approach should be, you know, tackling this out-of-the-box situations, or, you know, where our mind is so constrained? Yes, yeah, so I, I, yeah, so I think you're asking a couple of questions. Like you said, what you're alluding to is, would I have created email in India? But I think the subtext of your question is, how do you go overcome these constraints? That's right. Okay. Well, look, every great nation has had, always had a good revolution. India, we've never had a really good revolutionary movement in this country, and I don't even want to kill any people or violence or anything like that, okay? I'm saying that you need to have a movement that has a cultural connotation to it, and it will have to come from the youth. And that movement has to be a movement of freedom based on equality, one India, and this concept that I call innovation anytime, anyplace, by anybody, which means that everyone should have the right to freely express themselves. But that movement is not just going to come from you alone, but it's going to come from the mass of people in this room recognizing that your children 
Every year that goes by that we don't have this ability to fully express ourselves, as you say, this constraint, right, is going to diminish our values and beings. So many countries, the U.S. You know, had a piece of revolution. India, we never had really had a revolution, frankly. If you, if you read the history, we had a transfer of power. Okay? In fact, the document was called the transfer of power. You follow what I'm saying? Go read Malpat and transfer of power from one group to another group. We've never had a real good social movement in this country where people actually feel liberated. And I believe that you, the youth, can do such a, it could be a cultural movement, but you have to go within yourselves and build such a movement. And that movement has to be based on the right to freedom and creativity. It's not going to happen by the government, I'll guarantee you that. Period, right? It's going to come for you guys building a movement. That's the big answer to the question. The small answer to the question is you can do that in your own local lives at a very local level. Where if you see it, huge problems and challenges, the opportunity to innovate, start companies. In fact, what I want to do is, in India, we want to start a group called Innovation Corps. In the next 12 months, we want to identify 12 students across the villages and inner cities in India. We want to give them support, U.S. legal support, accounting support, mentor support to take their idea and actually create a business. So anyone in this university wants to know more about it, you know, we'll let your administrators know. But this is going to be a small way that we want to show love. You can take an idea, break through all these constraints, and create something, a company, in 12 months. But I'm saying you guys should start thinking about these kinds of programs that you can do. Does that answer your question? Uh, kind of, but then, uh, how do you say that you know, we can actually come out of the mundane life? How can you come out of the mundane life? This kind of mundane life. I've never experienced that. Uh, every day going to college, coming back, and uh, yeah, and you no, know, the it's like not college hours, and then you know, coming back, and it was, uh, I, I think, I, I think I get it. Well, no, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what my college life was, okay? When I came to MIT in 1981, I actually started a you know, there's a picture of me burning the South African flag on the MIT steps because I was against apartheid in South Africa, okay? Then I did research projects. Then when a friend of mine was jailed in Sri Lanka, we did a movement to get him out of Sri Lanka and with us again. So I was an active citizen, so I never found any mundane. So what I'm saying is, the way you get out of your mundane life is look around you and look at the problems that are actually around you and become an agent of change. And look, you know, it's great to be on Facebook, don't get me wrong, but a lot of people think having 3,000 friends on Facebook means you have 3,000 friends. Look at people around you. Why don't you guys get together and talk about these issues? I know you probably do that, but figure out how you can actually implement certain things. It'll, you'll, you'll find out your life is far less mundane when you start serving other people. Does that answer your question? You gotta serve others, man. Life is short. The whole goal here is to, you know, we all live together or we all lose together. Thank you. Yeah. I just wanted to ask a small question about your childhood life. Did you face any luck factor in your invention? Luck factor. Because creating a massive invention at the age of 14, it was totally systemized and planned, or did you face any luck factor in your invention? Yeah, I think I faced a lot of luck. 
You know, my mother is an amazing human being. And to all the women in this audience who seek women's liberation, you can look at my mother. And so I guess I was absolutely fortunate to be born into this family where I had a very amazing mother who was fearless, who was absolutely told the truth as it was, never, you know, try to be diplomatic. Some people say be diplomatic. My mom wasn't diplomatic. And sometimes you have to be diplomatic, but she wasn't. You know, when I challenged the Indian government, my mother, a 73-year-old woman, flew up to Delhi and she said, fight. So I was very fortunate to have a mother like that. And it was my mother who created these interesting situations. She pushed me in certain directions, supported me in other directions, opened doors to me. In fact, in the book that I have coming out, I said, I dedicated the book to my mother, and I said, to God's angel, open the doors of heaven to me. So that's my mother. And by the way, you know, women are really the powerhouses of India. And I want to say that because if you can go look at the history of India, in fact, the history of Tamil Nadu, the, the Dravidian history, it was based on not ownership of property, like the American Indians. And when you don't have ownership of property, it's matriarchal. Okay? And there's a lot of reasons I can discuss this, but it was with the ownership of property that we started subjugating our women. So if you want to create better lucky situations, stop, start treating women equally and fairly. It's the best way to create luck. Sir, I'm a great fan of people. When you are fighting in CSIR, you used to follow me every day on Instagram. I used to run the page on you and Wikipedia. My question is a political question. Good, I like politics. <laughs> in fact, that was the most important question. We all try to avoid, right, to be diplomatic. So let's get highly undiplomatic. The United States of America spending billions of dollars in surveying, uh, on surveillance of its own citizens and the uh, rest of the world. They are seeing what uh, people are doing in just uh, the Twitter. And India is trying to do the same thing. And our cyberspace uh, is becoming more and more politicized and they are trying to control the citizens' opinions. And uh, the situation is, uh, uh, the system is becoming more controlled. And how, as we are all engineers, uh, going to beat the system and become more open as we are talking about freedom of uh, speech and expression or and how we are going to do How we can well, so there's a couple of steps I can tell you. It's actually pretty easy, right? Look, let me tell you the CSIR incident, since you asked. When I was at CSIR, I, went, I took on that job sincerely. I thought it was an amazing opportunity for me to come back to India and help this 4,500-person organization create new technologies. I thought it was amazing that I could come back and serve my country. In the three months, I figured out a method to do that. and, and, and and then you can go read the reports that you said you've done. And when I put that report out, I had a choice to make because if, if I knew I could just sit there, in fact, my father-in-law at the time said, Shiva, why are you doing anything? Simply sit here. For the next year, you'll become the Minister of Science and Technology. Okay? Look, 
I was 44 years old. You could get a seven-acre bungalow in Delhi. Scientist level H, additional secretary of the Indian government. These are roles that people die for in India, as far as I understand. But you have to understand, I, I'm, I'm a very different person, right? I was brought up by a mother who would go fight with people, okay? For good things, for the right things. So when the CSR incident took place, I could have just sat there, but I didn't. It's a different type of nature. When I released that report, the press came to me and wanted to interview me. In fact, when I gave one of the press interviews, uh, I was told that if I gave that interview, I would be arrested. And I remember thinking about it, whether I should do it or not, and I thought about my grandparents in that small village. And I decided to do it for them. So I'm saying it's very personal. My point is that I challenged the Indian government alone, and there was another scientist, Barbara, who supported me. And then I left India. But the point is, I was just one person. If I had four more people, we could have completely changed CSR. I, I believe that, no exaggeration. My point is, look, you have a thousand people. You, you guys forget the power that you have. And the reason you forget that is because there is a deliberate, organized effort by those in power, systems of power, to diminish who you are, to consistently spread fear. Okay? This is done in an organized way. There's about maybe 50 people around India, another 500 people around the world. And these people work through propaganda. The propaganda diminishing women, diminishing people of other races, saying innovation cannot occur over here, invention email did not occur here. These are these stories that are done and they're used to capture and manipulate your minds. You follow what I'm saying? Yeah. 4,500 scientists at CSIR, prior to British occupation of India, India produces two Nobel Prize winners. After 1947, India has produced no indigenous Nobel Prize winners. What does that tell you? Just add up the number, 70 years, no Nobel Prize winners for indigenous India. It's the system, okay? Well, I think there's some engineers here, yes? How many engineers are here? Okay, you guys are all engineers. Well, figure out this system. Draw the diagram, okay? Look at the connections. Re-engineer the system. Because look, if I can stand up to CSIR and be bold, what's stopping you guys? You guys are all powerful human beings. You guys, I'm telling you, you you believe in our ancient tradition, there is a spark of God in you. Nothing can hurt you. What, what's gonna hurt you? Okay, so you die a little bit early fighting. Big deal, right? You're going to die anyway. Do you guys want to live in a country where there's not freedom for full expression or continue this way? It's your choice. So my point is, today the government is watching us. Snowden, who stood up against us, can't even get asylum anywhere. What does that say? What right, when did we give our government the right to spy on us? Did you give them that right? Anyone here? I, I don't remember giving them that right. No one, right? I'm saying all information should be made fully transparent. All of it. All governments. Okay, you spy on me? Fine, make it public, but I want to also know what you're saying. Let's make it all public. Full, radical democracy is what the world needs in 2013. What do you guys think? Full democracy. Let's all look at all of it. If you spy on me, I want to know everything. Let the world know everything. But you guys have to stand up for this. Full democracy. 
all I can say, you know? And I'm confident that you can do it. Look, 600 million people are below the age of 25. Does that answer your question anyway? Yeah. Courage. C-O-U-R-A-G-E. Thank you. Yep. We are going to start a program for renovation in taking place movies from some places. I am. Yeah, so in fact, I want to encourage your colleagues to submit people because what we want to do is we don't just want to do some, look, there are innovation contests where people just do take an idea. We want to actually identify 12 excellent young people, age of 14 through 17 and 18 through 21, two groups. We want you to, the, the application process can be really simple. There's no bureaucracy here, okay? There's no IAS office here stamping stuff. It's going to be really simple. You submit an application, you tell the title, you tell your innovation, who your target market is, what the impact is going to be, and whether you have a customer. You see, business plans are absolutely useless. Business plans are good for managing people who want to show that they can write a business plan. No entrepreneur ever writes a business plan, by the way. Entrepreneurs build stuff and they go get a customer. So what we want to do is we want to identify people with an idea, maybe have built a prototype of a service, and if you can get one customer. If you get a customer, and we think it's a good idea, we will give you, you can tell us how much money you need, we'll, we'll support you with some monetary funds, we're going to give you a Harvard-trained lawyer, okay? Who will protect you, give you the patents, the trademarks, all at no cost. We'll give you accounting support. We'll give you a business mentor. So now we're giving you an ecosystem, right? Within that ecosystem, we want you to take your product or idea. If you have a prototype, find that customer, work with that customer, make them happy, learn from it. And then once you've done that, we want to give you additional funding. And my intention, it's a big challenge, I want to do this for 12 young people. And if we do this, we will have done more than CSIR has done in 70 years. That's our goal. So if you want to do this, again, no, no government involvement. It's going to be me, you, other people helping. People coming together. No government. Got it? And it's not a governmental organization either. This is a non, no government organization. Okay? You can come up with a hardware product. You mechanical can, devices. What's that? Mechanical devices. Anything. But get a customer. My thing is you don't learn anything until you get a customer. When you get a customer, you have to make sure they like the product. Can you service them? You learn the cost of servicing. You see what I'm saying? You have, so if you, if you have a product, get a customer. Show me that you can use it. And you can get the application forms. It's, it's online. In fact, what we'll do is we'll send it to you. If you can send it to all the students, you simply go online, you apply, and we actually have a Harvard lawyer from Harvard Law School who's actually going to be managing this process. So we want to give you the best legal support, okay? Same thing like, you know, people in San Francisco and everywhere else get. But I encourage you all to apply. Let's show the world what can be created, right? What do you guys think?
We are just marked and given marks. Why was Taj Mahal built? When the student writes it, two marks for that. It was built out of marble, two marks for that. It was built to Mumtaj, two marks for that. We are still struggling with that education system in India. Movement. 
which said, believe in yourself, devotion, and how to serve others. If you look at the history between the 8th century to the 15th century, as that movement took off, and if you read the history, there's a great book by uh, Muslim that are called Rise and Fall of East India Company. He details it. In fact, there's only one copy of this book I saw at Harvard University. Very hard to find. But between the 8th century and 5th century Indian history, you actually start seeing the breakdown of the caste system. You see intercaste marriages. You follow me? You see this freedom taking place. That is why when the Portuguese, the Dutch, the British came, you had the rise of the merchant class, the rise of artisans, and this was happening because of this Bhakti movement. And the, Brit the British, the Dutch came to trade with these people who were the emerging entrepreneurs. But what unfortunately occurred in India was when the British colonialism took place following the Battle of Plassey in 1657, again you read the history, the British recognized that these emerging traders were their competition. These are emerging Indian traders who are getting more freer, politically, socially. There was a decaying feudal lords, right? The kings were killing 300 tigers, had 200 wives, and stuff. Those people were dying, decaying. They went and collaborated with them. And if you then read the history, they rewrote, they, they, they were afraid to impose British law in India. Because they knew if they imposed British law, we would revolt. So what did they do? They went and found pre 8th century Indian law. Before 8th century, all the draconian, very hard caste laws, and they reimposed that. You can go read all this. So what we ended up getting was pre-8th century, absolutely idiotic laws that run our wars. Who can marry who? Detailed rules. All this oppression, because it helped the British, they wanted control. Right? The British had their Victorian system, they wanted control. This entire mentality was decaying in Indian culture, it was actually deployed. That affected our educational system, political system, everything. So that is why the entire strata of the IAS who runs India is simply a duplication of British feudalism. That is what I experienced at CSIR. That's why if you read my report, I called it the feudal wars. We never got freedom, guys. You need to wake up. India had a transfer of power. Mount that left and put, we went from white guys and crowns to brown people and white hats. And until you really realize the importance of this, the educational system is a system which is very stratified. This is why you have people burning down people when one guy from one class marries another. It's absolutely ridiculous. We should all marry everyone. <laughs> you know, we should have, it should be sexual freedom, open freedom, all freedom. Everyone should talk about this. You see in the movies why the chief minister can have three wives and other people can't. You know what I'm saying? I'm saying that there's hypocrisy here. This all comes from thinking that the kings can do certain things and the peasants can't. I'm saying it's a fundamental issue that if you look, we have to look at our history and understand our history. India never got freedom at the fundamental level. And you guys should demand that freedom. The educational system will not change until you have the freedom. I mean, you should get tax credits for intercaste marriages. You marry someone from another caste, you get tax credit. Okay? You should break down all these rules. So I'm saying that the, the educational system, this rope system, not breaking rules, I break every rule. Right? People typically go, you, you come to the US, 
you get your undergraduate, then your degree, then you get married, then da da da. I didn't call that rule. You gotta break rules, guys. India, all of you guys will break five rules today, okay? But the institutions are forced to 
How many businesses have come out of this institution? Okay. What I'm saying is today you count places, right? That's your success factor. Am I right? Suppose the success factor became how many companies got started out of my institution. Right? So here, I think I was meeting with the, one of the chairmen of one of the other institutions, and we have today people are job seekers, we should have job creators. Because one is like a mushroom effect. So I would suggest the incentive model should be how many of my graduates actually help start their own companies and how many jobs did they get. That's what we need to do. But I'm saying that can only happen if we go back to the fundamentals, that innovation can happen anywhere, anytime, any place. We don't have to wait for one TCS or one Infosys, all the good companies, right? Or one Tata. Tata supposedly is the only innovator in India, right? No one else can compete with Tata. So I'm saying these fundamentals have to be changed, and it has to come from people, and I'm just hoping in one year we can create 12 companies. And I'm saying that's what you should set your metrics on. You see, MIT, the reason MIT is successful is they can say in one five-mile radius, one trillion dollars worth of businesses have come out. You feel what I'm saying? That's what you need to say. Look, it's like, that's a movement right there, right? You guys follow what I'm saying? It's in your hands. You guys are only 20 years old, 22, 21. You guys can do anything you want. Absolutely anything you want. Don't follow rules. You're going to become a robot.